I'm going to tell you and anyone else listening to me that 39 plus 1 is more than 40 plus 0. And people look at me cross-eyed. I said, I'm going to repeat. 39 plus 1 is more than 40 plus 0. Of course, they're all stymied. Then I say, let me tell you why. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, former CEO of ADP, Josh Weston. Automatic data processing, known as ADP, had a change in 1970, and that change was Josh Weston. While at ADP for nearly 30 years, Josh helped lead the company to a record-breaking 164 quarters of double-digit growth. This turned ADP from a multi-million dollar company into a multi-billion dollar one. But Josh is much more than a businessman. He serves on many nonprofit boards and has a strong affinity for Israel. He's actually led 19 trips of senior executives to the country. I know Josh very well. He's my personal mentor and serves on iTrix board. And what impresses me the most about Josh is that while he's very successful, he's also very down to earth. Josh consistently raises up those around him, whether entry-level employees or refugees to the US. Before we jump into his record-breaking numbers, our conversation began back in the late 40s when Josh applied to college. He was bright and thought that things would come easy to him until he came into contact with something which stopped him from getting to where he wanted to go. I was valedictorian at Brooklyn Tech, tough high school, number one. I applied to three colleges, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, and the third application was funny. Some folks told me there's a college you can't get into unless you pass a test. Happened to be City College, CCNY. So I took the test just to see if I can pass. Believe it or not, as class valedictorian, Columbia and Johns Hopkins turned me down. I subsequently found out that they had a Jewish quota. But fortunately, I took the test for the other reason I ended up going to City College. And how was the time at City College? The only thing I'm going to tell you about City College is in my senior year, the dean of students told me I'm one credit short. So I said, what do you have for a credit? He says, be serious, take a useful course. A useful course is three credits, takes more time. I said, look, I only owe you one credit. What do you have? He said, the only thing we have is golf. Now, this is in the middle of New York City. There are no golf courses in Manhattan. And in the gym, I learned how to play golf. So I now have a college transcript, unlike anyone else you know, that has a line item that says, I passed in golf. I played twice, got bored, and never played again. So other than this very important golf credit, what else stood out from your time at City College? While I was going to college, which was in 1948-49-50, some of my friends say, you know, if we sign up in the Naval Reserve nearby City College, once a month, we go down to the battleship and we play volleyball and they give us $20. So I joined the Naval Reserve. While I was at City College in my senior year, I saw a sign that said Fulbright Program. I didn't know what it was. So he asked the Dean of Students and he said, it's a government program where you can study abroad for a year, but I'll give you some advice. Don't apply to England. Don't apply to France. Your chance will be one in a thousand. Everybody wants to get there. 
I said, what do you suggest? He says, no one knows where New Zealand is, and your chance is one out of three, you'll get accepted. And I didn't know anything about New Zealand, so I did what people back then did. You walked to the library. I got the Fulbright, but now Korea starts up. The Korean War, so I went to the Navy and said, look, I owe you my time. So the officer said, okay, report to the Naval Attaché in Wellington, New Zealand, in case we need you. They never needed me. I thought that was pretty funny. And then when I came back, I had to go in the Navy. And I lived in Brooklyn, and someone told me that at Floyd Bennett Field, an airfield in Brooklyn, and they weren't so good with numbers. So I went and said, look, I'm being called up anyhow. And you get a guy with a master's degree who knows how to multiply numbers. Why don't you contact the Naval District and tell them you want me assigned? And for two years, I was doing Navy payrolls. So in the early 50s, you were released from the Navy. And then you joined J. Crew, the clothing company, where you ended up working for 15 years. When you joined J. Crew, you were pretty young. How did you rise up to the position of a COO? It was a young company with a young owner. And a young company with a young owner is more likely to hire other younger people. I applied as a management trainee, and within my first year, I ended up being the CFO because I was fixing things. And then after a while, I became the COO. Back then, J. Crew did not have any stores. J. Crew back then had a catalog and 100,000 sales agents who showed the catalog to their friends, took orders, sent the orders to our distribution center, and they got a commission. Our conveyor belt system and the pick-and-pack system that we had in 1960 without computers is about 80% similar to what goes on in Amazon distribution centers today. Then in about 1964, IBM said, we're coming out with this big new computer. Would you agree to be a beta test site for how to use our computers in big distribution centers. So we computerized what we were doing anyway, and now instead of being 80% similar to Amazon, we were 90% similar. That's pretty impressive. But then at a certain point, you decided to leave? I stayed at J. Crew for 15 years, was having breakfast and lunches with the same guys for 15 years, and I thought that was enough. So in my mind, I said, I'll do something else. We had four kids, and my wife said, do anything you want. But with all the school busing, she says, no kid should have to change his school. Well, that meant I could move three blocks either way. Fortunately, a company called ADP, Automatic Data Processing, had its headquarters near where I lived. The then CEO, a guy named Frank Lautenberg, who went on to become a senator, he had a messed up company. He didn't think it was messed up, but he had an industrial engineer who used to work for me and told Frank, you're so messed up, only one guy can straighten it out. Go get Josh Weston. Well, I want to make a change anyway. So I went to ADP 1982. I became CEO. 1996, I retired. Something happened on the way. When I came to ADP, the total revenue was $25 million. Its current volume is close to $18 billion. And along the way, ADP had 
164 consecutive quarters of publicly reported double-digit growth in both revenue and earnings per share. There's no company in the United States that even had half that. That meant we must have been doing a few things right. So Josh, how did you lead the company to 164 consecutive quarters of double-digit growth? Item number one, wherever you are, is people. Now, in most publicly owned companies, the opening page is a letter from the CEO to all the shareholders saying all the good things the company did. And then usually the last paragraph says, and we thank all of our employees for their loyal support. When a line at the end of a printed booklet says that, it means absolutely nothing. If people matter, then you're a CEO, you got to meet the people. So I made it a point to visit every ADP's location at least twice a year. We had 30 locations around the country and a few in Europe. And when I went to a location, I did not sit down in the general manager's office. I wanted to walk around, see the people, and say, folks, we'll talk about anything you want to talk about, and you can ask me any question you want. And there I am talking to all the associates We don't use the word employee because the word employee means somebody else is on top called the employer. So we would meet all the associates for over an hour and we'd have Q&A back and forth and the individual associates would get to know that the CEO is interested in them. As a colorful add-on, if I'm going to all these locations, if I'm flying to St. Louis from New Jersey, I'm not going to fly back. Once I'm in St. Louis, I'll take another plane to Kansas City. The next day, I'll go to Minneapolis and then Chicago. So I'm out on the road the whole week. And the arrangement I would make was go rent a place where we can have a private dinner and get three tables of 10 and then invite 27 people, our associates and their spouses. Well, why 27? If you got three times 10 is 30 because I want a seat at each table. Before we sat down for dinner, I'd clink a glass and tell the folks I'm going to talk for three minutes and then you can keep socializing and 10 minutes from now I'll clink the glass again. So in these little three-minute bursts, most importantly, I was telling the spouses, particularly the spouses who knew damn near nothing about the company, what's going on at ADP. So that then when their husband or wife came home late, instead of being pissed off, they'd say, boy, this company has really accomplished a lot. Well, there are many different ways a CEO or a leader can connect with people. I'll tell you one more. At company headquarters in Roseland, New Jersey, I had the HR director pick at random 10 low-level supervisors from different areas for a two-hour breakfast with me. When the 10 people came to the two-hour breakfast, I said, look, we'll eat the scrambled eggs in 15 minutes. And then I'm going to ask each one of you to tell the other nine what goes on in your department. After you're each done, I will add a few words about your department and how it connects to the other department. And incidentally, folks, when I'm done going around a table with 10 people, I want you to give me advice on how ADP could be a better company. Well, number one, low-level supervisors spending two hours with the CEO. Number two, they get the chance to tell their colleagues what their department does. Number three, I'm asking them how to make ADP a better company. So I'm not a guy up on the hundredth floor of a tall building who never sees the working people. 
There are many other examples, but the key message is if people matter, you gotta meet the people. Chas, I'm curious, what's your connection to Israel? My father, who came from Russia in the First World War, the Germans captured him, and he was a prisoner, was part of the Poalim who always wanted to go to Palestine. The word Israel wasn't around. He couldn't do it. He's always talked about it. And I'm about nine years old, and he's telling me how great Palestine is, but he's never going to get there. Well, time goes by. I'll fast forward to 1967. I had never been to Israel. It was Israel by then. And I decided I'm going to take my father to Israel. So I book a flight. The flight gets canceled on departure day because the Six-Day War happened. And so we got postponed three weeks, and then I flew over to Israel with him. Very inspiring. Met other family members who lived in Israel and sort of got attached. And when did you actually make it formal that you started leading delegations of top senior executives to Israel? In the United States, a guy named Malcolm Honline, executive vice president of the Conference of Jewish Presidents, calls me. I'm CEO of ADP then. And he says, would you consider taking groups of executives to Israel? Because you know a lot of them. I said, well, okay, but I'll only do it if the prime minister, back then Bibi Netanyahu, will authorize me to put in my letter to American CEOs the following. Hey, dear friend, I'm organizing a trip to Israel because the prime minister of Israel has asked me to bring some American executives. Do you want to join me? Well, with an intro like that, first group, I had the head of J&J, I had the head of ATT. Cumulatively, I've taken 19 groups, 90% not Jewish, and they enjoy it. I'm glad to see they get connected. One year, I took the head of Chemical Bank. Chemical Bank had no branches in Israel. Once we came back, Israel had a branch. Josh, I know that giving back is super important for you, and you care a lot about social impact. You sit on many nonprofit boards, including iTrax, and I wonder, can you share what's your philanthropic strategy and why giving back is so important to you? When I retired in 1996, I shifted all my focus to not-for-profit activities, ended up on 10 not-for-profit boards, was chairman of five of them. Most of my philanthropy is connected to my also being involved with the organization. I very seldom, if ever, have given any significant amount to an organization that's far away and I don't see them. And then if you get on 10 pro bono boards, you know more what they're doing. You're more inclined to help them out with money because you can see how they're managing it. It's stupid to die with your money in your coffin. So do everything you're doing while you're alive. Take care of your kids, providing you their future, and give the rest away while you're living and you can see where it goes. So having done fairly well at ADP, I fulfilled that wish and I've given away virtually all that I didn't need. So your family were once immigrants to the U.S. and I know that this impacted you a lot. And one of the ways that it impacted you is that you now donate much of your time to personally help refugees. Can you share stories and talk about some of these people you've helped? 
I was on the board of the International Rescue Committee, which settles refugees in the United States. And as with all my other boards, I wanted to go where the action is, not in the clean room on 42nd Street. I adopted, not legally, but figuratively, six families and helped every one of them have a very solid life in the United States. So I meet Fazal, refugee with his wife Shabnam, and they had come from Afghanistan. I say, Fazal, what do you want to do in the U.S.? He says, I'd like to be in construction management. I have a civil engineering degree from Afghanistan. I said, Fazal, your civil engineering degree from Afghanistan is worthless. You want to go into construction management? Stevens Institute in New Jersey is the MIT of New Jersey. I know the president. Do you want to get interviewed? He says, yes. I get him interviewed by the president. They think he's pretty good. He enrolls, gets a master's degree in construction management. Then my friend around the corner here, who's an architect, they gave a lot of business to Turner Construction. That's a very big construction company. So I said to my friend, can you get them just to interview Fazal? They interview Fazal, they hire him, and Fazal's now happily working for Turner. Now we get to his wife, Shabnam. Shabnam, what do you want to do here? She says, I got a law degree from Afghanistan. I said, Shabnam, a law degree from Afghanistan is useless. What do you want to do here? She said, I'd like to get into public administration. Well, I said, if you want to do that, you'd be best off getting a master's degree in public administration. Go to Rutgers and see what their school of public administration has. She goes and calls me and says, they want my transcript from Afghanistan. I pick up the phone and I call the provost of Rutgers University, whom I knew, and I say, that's pretty stupid. Why don't you interview the lady and see what you think? The interviewer, in 15 months, she gets an MPA and Rutgers hires her. So she's got a job at Rutgers. Fazal's got a job in New York working for Turner. Things are going well. They now own their own house. Josh, you've been a leader for many years, both in business and philanthropy. What would you say is an important leadership quality that is often overlooked? The way I pose it is, first think to yourself about the biggest deficit in America. I'll give you 10 seconds. If you thought it was the federal budget deficit, you're wrong. If you thought it was the trade deficit, you're wrong. Well, then what's right? The biggest deficit we have in the United States is the integrity deficit. And once you lose integrity, everything else becomes degraded. In the IRS, the head of the service has estimated that close to a billion dollars a year does not come in because people do things that aren't nice. Well, why do they do it? Risk versus reward? I saved 10 grand, and it's very remote that uh, I'll ever get caught. And unfortunately, throughout America, people take a risk versus reward point of view. And therefore, although I've only been talking about taxes, integrity deficits all over the place, how politicians talk to you, they think X but tell you Y, and so on. Josh, when you think about your legacy, what do you have in mind? I'll be dead by then, so it doesn't really matter. So I don't think about my legacy, what I do try to do, and I probably sort of came 
through a little bit in our conversations is do things while I'm alive that help other people so I can have the satisfaction of seeing it as compared to putting a sentence in my will that says when I'm dead give my money to X and I won't even be around to know what's going on. To me a legacy is much less important than what you do when you're breathing. Now for our final questions. What is one piece of advice that you wish that somebody would have given you at the beginning of your journey? I'm going to tell you and anyone else listening to me that 39 plus 1 is more than 40 plus 0. And people look at me cross-eyed. I said, I'm going to repeat. 39 plus 1 is more than 40 plus 0. Of course, they're all stymied. Then I say, let me tell you why. You're a busy guy at work. 40 hours a week. You've got an in-basket full of paper, the phone's buzzing, email all over the place, and you're just hacking away 40 hours a week. Guy right next to you's got the same kind of job, same kind of load. He's a 39 plus one person. No matter how busy he is, figuratively, he takes an hour a week to think about what he's doing, how he's doing it, how can I do it better? Maybe we don't have to do it at all. And over any period of time, That 39 plus one person is going to get more useful outcome than the 40 plus zero person. I once told that story to the head of McKinsey. And about three months later, he's walking down Fifth Avenue, and I'm walking down Fifth Avenue. Comes over to me and says, hey, Josh, I still remember that 39 plus one is more than 40 plus zero. It's a good piece of advice. What is the one thing that people get absolutely wrong about you? Oh, people get a lot of things wrong about me. They think I'm always balanced and smiling and so on. But every now and then, even though I blow one up at the top, I never yell at anybody. But inside, I'm angry about something that somebody did was stupid. But I think in my whole life, and I've tried very hard to remember any time I yelled, and I can remember exactly only once when one of my grandchildren took my wristwatch and threw it on the ground. And all I did was yell, and I said, why'd you do that? Yelling at people doesn't accomplish anything. Finally, what are you most optimistic about? Well, the only way to be optimistic nowadays is to forget politics, forget U.S. foreign policy, don't think about all of that, and then you'll sort of feel good, particularly if you're lucky enough to have nice friends, nice family, you don't suffer from food hunger, and you don't suffer from being unemployed. I'm pretty lucky. Josh Weston, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. It was wonderful having you on our show. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Eli Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening and Detroit. See you next time.